Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 128. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a, I'm a biology teacher from Acton, Massachusetts. On Life of the School podcast, I sometimes sit down with a panel of fellow life science teachers, but we're going to return to our original format of interviewing a biology teacher, and I'm going to interview our recently joined panelist, Amy Kelly. Amy is a biology teacher in Manuka Community High School in Manuka, Illinois. She currently teaches first-year biology, including co-teaching an inclusive biology class, and she also regularly teaches a forensic science elective. Amy is a National Geographic Certified Educator and is working on her National Board Certification. She earned her BS in Biological Sciences from Eastern Illinois University and her Master's in Curriculum Instruction from Olivet Nazarene University. Welcome, Amy. Thank you for having me. Great, yeah, great to have you on in the in the one on one. We had you on the panel um, last month with Mark, and that was great. Um, and I really enjoyed your insight into our. We were dipping our toe into IEPs and special education, <laughs> which was uh, definitely not an area of my strength. So um, I, I'm glad that you were with us. Yeah, it was fun to talk about all of that. Like I think honestly, when I first started, I wasn't really. I'm very well versed in the special ed world, but as I've taught more, I just, uh, it's become a passion of mine. So I was really excited to be able to share that um, with you guys. Yeah. And it's interesting, like your journey, like when, depending on your classes you teach, because up until just a couple of years ago, I taught in a a very, like I, I, I taught in this um, basically very special program for kids, super at risk. And for a long time, I taught the students who were most at risk in my school of not passing our state exam and this super at-risk population. And then I kept teaching this at-risk population, and then I returned to teaching honors biology in this at-risk population. And then I started teaching AP biology and honors biology in this at-risk population. And eventually, they sort of moved me out just because our, our AP program had grown. But for a long time, I was sort of this expert on you know reaching these really hard-to-reach kids. And I, I have such a different... like. Um, like I'm now looked as sort of the biology expert in my school, but if you were to have seen me in school, like 13 years ago, 14 years ago, I worked with such a different population of kids, uh, that, you know, depending on where you catch somebody in their journey, you get, you get different people. And as I said, I, you know, 13 years ago, I could have talked IEPs and 504s and accommodations and special ed meetings. I was doing, you know, like two of them a week, I felt. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, that that has not been a major part of my life for the last few years. So, um, and I'm sure a lot of that has changed. Uh, definitely the way you structure your class is very different than I think we had as best practice uh, many years ago. So it was, it was great to hear you talk about the um, the menu of choices. So, uh, anybody who, anybody who wants to hear some, some really good accommodations and, and UDL stuff, our last two episodes were great for that stuff. So, um, but yes, now let's get to the, the meat of the episode, which is talking to you one-on-one, um, <laughs> which, which I, by the way, sandbagged you on this. Cause I asked who wants to be on a panel. I didn't say who wants to be interviewed one-on-one. I don't know if that would have changed your, I don't know if that would have changed your answer when I first put the call out there. Yeah. 
most teachers are shy. So, uh, but, <laughs> but we'll, we'll see how you do here. So, so let's get into to this. As I said, we've got a little bit of background, but um, I'm, I love to hear this first question. I like to ask everybody, which is like, how'd you become a science teacher? What, what led you into the classroom? So pretty much my whole life growing up, I wanted to be a vet. And I think everybody thought I was going to be a vet. I may have even thought I was a vet before I was. I was like trying to treat everybody's pets. And I worked at vet clinics, uh, really have a passion for animals and for, you know, the, just the biology and pathology even behind uh, veterinary science. But um, as I started volunteering more and seeing the vet's lifestyle, especially the young vet's, I recall um, one of the vets I worked for, she was just out of college and she said, you know, I don't even sleep uh, in my bed at night because I'm an, on call almost every weekday. So if I sleep in my bed, I'll get too comfortable. I don't ever want to be that comfortable. <laughs> and I thought, geez, oh, this, this, is, this is very high stress. And then the very, very competitive nature of uh, pre-med and pre-vet students, it really wasn't my thing. I remember uh, I was in organic chemistry <laughs> with this professor that literally, I don't think I saw his face for the entire time he talked because he was facing the board and he'd start on one side of the board and just write like for 60 minutes. And it wasn't the best experience. And I was having a hard time with organic chemistry. And there were these kids around me who just thought it was so simple. And I thought, I just don't know if I want to deal with competing with all of these people who may naturally be able to pick up on something like organic chemistry, where I have to work so hard. Mm -hmm. So the combination of the stress of the potential job and then pretty much organic chemistry, um, those were the, that was a nail in the coffin for, for my vet studies. But I promptly uh, changed my major to education and it was mostly linked to an experience I had with a former teacher. Her name was Mrs. Rock. Hmm. She was my English teacher in junior high. And I have no clue why, but she asked my mom to, to talk to me about bringing in my lizard <laughs> to her class to speak with her students. And I had at the time a, um, maybe a four or five foot iguana. And uh, her name was Iggy. And she lived in my parents' bathroom. I don't know how they let me get away with this, but she <laughs> didn't have a cage. She lived in the bathroom. We set up lights. It was craziness. But anyway, I brought her um, to the school and I remember being in front of those kids holding this lizard and they were just all full of questions and curiosity. And I was just so energized by that environment. And I thought, you know what, I think this is this is what I want to do. I like this environment. I like having the control of being able to you know, teach kids things that I feel are, are really important and seeing them light up. And uh, I just I just thought it was a good um, environment for me. And when I switched to education, everything just really fell into place. My stress levels went down. <laughs> Believe it or not, right? Yeah. In education, my stress levels went down. Um, but it, I, I just really felt at home um, with with being a teacher and, and being in front of people and just um, getting them curious about science. Wow. So that's really where I started. And I, honestly, when I graduated, I didn't uh, jump into teaching right away. Um, but I got this really weird phone call from a school that was about an hour south of me. And it was kind of an emergency situation. 
they needed to fill a spot. And uh, I went in and interviewed and signed the contract like 20 minutes after I interviewed. Like it was that kind of gig. And about three weeks later, um, I was teaching in, in, in a classroom in a very rural and very, very poverty stricken area. And it was a, a very big learning experience for me. Yeah. Um, the school was at risk for being taken over by the state. So they had a lot of issues. But it was just, um, it was a really interesting experience uh, for my first year of teaching. But it really helped me understand that there's groups of kids out there that aren't being reached. And I started thinking about how how can all kids get this education they deserve, no matter where they live or what their parents do. And so I think that experience, as tough as it was, really got me started with the path of teaching more challenging populations of students. Yeah. And you switched from a much more rural school and sort of what is the demographics of the school where you teach now? We know that you teach these inclusive classes, but uh, it sounds like you're not in a very rural school. No. Yeah. So the, the school that I started at, oh, we only had 300 students. There was only <laughs> two science teachers and um, every class was a different prep. Yeah. And then now where I teach, we have a, a roughly 2,800 kids. Um, and there's just, there's six biology teachers alone. So yeah. we're a, a, a bigger school. It's a suburban school district. So we're about um, an hour, give or take, from Chicago. Yeah. So, yeah, it is. It's a lot different demographic, um, a, a lot, a lot of uh, variety, though, in terms of uh, social economic status and um, ethnicity and culture and stuff. So we are kind of becoming more of a melting pot than maybe we were like 10 years ago at my current district. Mm -hmm. um, but definitely, I love teaching there because of the the great department that I have and going from a school where I only had one other teacher to talk to <laughs> into a department type position was just really so beneficial for me early on. Yeah, it's a big professional change. I, I taught at two of the schools I taught in early in my career. Um, your your description is very funny because I remember my, I got hired uh, my my now wife, uh, it, it, she was she was going into her senior year of college. I had graduated and I had applied to get my master's degree. And I just decided to send out some resumes for some openings. Um, and she left and went home to New Jersey for her birthday at the end of August. And when she came back after the weekend, I had interviewed and been hired to be a science teacher. <laughs> and she's like, what did you do? Like, how did you, how did this happen? Like, um, but it was a similar thing they had. It was an emergency. And I remember like, mm -hmm. they asked me a couple of questions and I honestly don't remember like the first 15 minutes of the interview, but like they paused and they're like, do you have any questions for us at this point early on? And I was like, yeah, I, I don't have a teaching certificate. Am I at any it, like, you know, disadvantage in this interview to compare to other teachers? And I saw the guy who became my future boss. He like looked to the person on the right, the person on the left, and he said, "We're considering all candidates on an equal status at this point." And I was like, "Oh, you're looking for a warm body. I can be a warm body." <laughs> um, and and sure enough, they hired me, and it was uh, it was not quite two; it was a, a department of six. Um, 
that I got hired to, but a lot of preps and a lot of it. And very much, uh, it was a, a much more rural district than where I grew up. And, um, there actually is a prison in the town. So it was a, a very different type of school than what I had grown up going to. And you, you learn a lot about sort of differences and, you know, me, little 22 year old, not knowing anything about the world, except for my own personal experiences. I learned a lot in that environment, but, uh, I know that when I came to my current school where I am one of, you know, uh, seven or eight, I don't know. We've all like, we're tons of biology teachers. Uh, I learn, I, I get to learn a lot from the colleagues that I have because mm-hmm. there's so many people to, to bounce ideas off or brainstorm or, or that sort of stuff. So, um, I, I heard a lot of my own personal story in your story. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing. Um, yeah, I was totally unprepared for that first year because I hadn't even taken my certification test mm-hmm. yet. And so I had to do like emergency certification testing. I paid so much for that. And I didn't have a driver's license and I (laughs) took a job that was 55 miles from my house. And so uh, my now husband, then boyfriend, had the task of teaching me to drive because I didn't know how to drive. And he had like a week and a half to do it. And so it was so stressful. I'm like, okay, what happens if I don't pass this test? (laughs) Both tests, the driver's test, I was pretty confident in, but I was a little nervous about about the teaching test because I wasn't even going to get my results for like two weeks after I was already teaching. Yeah. Well, it was just, it was crazy, but you know, it was the push I needed to, to get into the teaching (laughs) world. So I don't regret it, Yeah. but it was, it was an experience for sure. The not having a driver's license, that might trump it. That might be the best, like crazy job opening story. (laughs) Taking a job that far away when you don't have a driver's license is, uh, (laughs) Maybe that one's a little nutty, but um, yeah, I'm so old that there was no teacher test when I got started teaching. So they, it was coming. It was, they had announced that they were coming and they were in plans, but uh, I have been teaching to the point. um, I was actually just talking to my sister who's talking about, uh, you know, changing states and, and looking at uh, teacher tests. And she's like, well, what about you? And I was like, oh, you forget. And my sister's, you know, uh, not, you know, She's seven, eight years younger than me, but she was asking, was like, oh no, I'm so old. There was no test when I started teaching. (laughs) Um, So yeah. so yeah, I could, I could drive, um, but I didn't have a certification. <laughs> I think the literally back then it was, it, they were like, the school just said, we're giving him emergency certification. Like that was it. Like the school said they, that we need to hire this person. And it was a one year, but I was starting my master's program. So I had it like seven, eight months later, but yeah, so that's funny. All right. Well, we could, we could dive into the, the craziness of, uh, I mean, we could do a whole podcast on, uh, what it was like to, I mean, I guess it went well. You not only got your driver's license, but you eventually married each other. So you didn't kill each other or any of that. We could, yeah. but we could do a whole podcast on learning to drive, but, uh, I am curious what came out and we mentioned it early on here and in the previous shows that, um, you, you became a co-teacher in a biology course and, uh, co-teaching is something that they, they bring up in my school. In fact, I've, I was in a meeting just last week where I was talking about the concept of a co-teach, a co-taught course, um, an interdisciplinary co-taught course, which is going to be even rarer that I think we have one of those in my school right now, but there is a co-teaching model that they've been working on the last few years, getting special educators and teachers, but it seems like it was really hard to get off the ground in our school. And I'm just curious, uh, how you began, uh, doing that and how that maybe fits into the culture of the school that you teach in. Well, in my first two districts, there was no such thing as co-teaching. And um, 
you know, special ed services weren't something that I was exposed to a whole lot outside of getting called to maybe an IEP meeting. Mm -hmm. But when I got hired at Manuka, they let me know right away that I would be doing some co-taught classes with a special ed teacher. And I think, unfortunately, at the time, a lot of new teachers got, I hate to say stuck, but kind of stuck with these um, what are perceived as less desirable classes. You know, the veteran teachers were getting the honors, uh, the AP, and then the newer teachers were getting the general level and the applied level, which is what we used to call that uh, co-taught classes. And it would be a um, remedial level course with a lot of modifications. And for a while, it was actually a separate biology course completely. Hmm. And so it was very, very different. We had separate textbooks. We had separate tests and everything. Our co-teachers came from a co-op and they were not um, even hired by our school district. And so that was really unique because you were not guaranteed to have the same co-teacher for all your classes. And the co-teachers, they were not being paid as high as the uh, teachers at our district. And so they were leaving a lot. Wow. So we ended up having a lot of turnover, which made things more complicated. But after a few years of being at Manuka, they ended up uh, no longer using a co-op for their co-taught classes, and they hired their own special ed teachers and developed their own special ed department at my district. And that really made a huge difference when they had a department chair of special ed Mm -hmm. and they were ensuring that teachers were not rotating between five different classes, but, you know, they were becoming um, specialists in certain areas. And that was real important, especially for science, because I can't imagine what it's like to have mostly co-taught English and social studies. And all of a sudden you're in a biology class. Yeah. It's got to be really hard. And so what happened a lot is the co-teachers kind of sat in the back and they handled discipline, they modified tests and that sort of thing, but they weren't really involved in um, organization, at least not not in my classes. But then, um, you know, we started shifting a lot as the department formed for special ed into this uh, common prep and plan time when we would meet with the special ed teachers in our department or team time to help plan. And we have one special ed teacher that does biology. We have one special ed teacher that does chemistry. Um, I think there might be a new teacher here or there that has a section or two of chemistry and and the physics is between two or three teachers. Mm. But uh, overall, it's it's really been Uh, It's been really amazing to have that because now my co-teacher can plan stuff with me. She she knows how to modify things because she understands the content. Mm -hmm. So it's not just like, let's get rid of a question or two or let's get rid of an answer or, or or let's read something aloud. She's saying, well, we can format this this way. Because it's another way for them to show what they know about this. Because yeah. she knows now the content um, very, very well. And so I've been lucky enough to have the same co-teacher over the last uh, four or five years now. And uh, she's doing amazing with our students. And I feel like we are we are a team. We talk about pretty much everything about the planning and 
implementation of our, our lessons and anything I do, I send her in advance so she can look it over and give me feedback. So I feel like um, this shift over the past you know, decade from what was once very, very difficult situation, not ideal, has turned into uh, a really great partnership. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what team teaching is, is supposed to be about. Yeah, yeah. We, we've even we've even moved towards um, not modifying the whole course anymore. So biology is is biology. It's a general level bio class. We we differentiate instead of bringing down the level for everybody. Yeah. Well, it sounded like when you were describing it, it really sounded to me like um, they weren't you weren't co teaching. You were given like really a special ed assistant. Like the model that you were giving was very much to me like, and not even uh, a well-supported special education assistant, Um, but as somebody who's taught with a lot of different um, teachers, there's a big difference between having a certified teacher in your room, um, even if they're not content specialist, a certified teacher versus somebody who is like a paraprofessional. Mm -hmm. And there is enormous quality variation in all kinds of educators. But if somebody has a degree where education was part of their degree, like a special educator, they're bringing in a degree of specialty into it that's Mm -hmm. much different. And while you can hit a home run with a special ed assistant, and I know I have, I've had a couple of special ed assistants where after working with them for a couple of years, you you can get into that co-teaching model. Um, Having another professional teacher uh, which it sounds like you finally have um, over the last few years, It's it makes a huge, huge difference. Um, and you said you also have common planning time? Yeah, we do. And it doesn't always work out that way. Um, but this year we have, uh, we teach a, a modified block schedule. So mm-hmm. we're like an AB uh, schedule. So we have 90 minute blocks. And so on a one day, uh, we do have a, a second hour in common that we can at least touch base or um, try and meet with students together. Sometimes when we meet with kids, we'll do it separate, but sometimes we try and work together because uh, sometimes it takes a little bit to figure out what that kid needs to be successful. So we sometimes kind of team up on that. But uh, it, it's really, really, really nice to have that common plan time and uh, also to have our special ed teachers sit in on our team meetings for biology too, so they can give some input on different ways to differentiate assessments and such. Wow. Wow. Yeah. We have, um, our, we, we teach a rotating drop block schedule and I currently have like almost no common prep with any of the people I teach with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have a, it's like every, it's not every two weeks, but, um, like once or twice a month, we have an early release Monday, uh, where we have booked into our schedule planning time. So like mm-hmm. it's, it the kids are gone and then the adults have to sort it out. So, so we have, they have it built into our schedule, but it's not, it's not a, an AB kind of day or a, for yeah. us it's blue gold. It's not a, it's not an every other day kind of window. It, but um, yeah, having common planning time is, uh, is huge. So I can, I can see why that, uh, that's such a big thing. So uh, we've been hitting on this, uh, that your biology journal, but uh, I also know that when talking to you before, um, and us, you know, uh, stalking you on your website, uh, <laughs> you have a, you have a forensics course and a whole forensics component. And, uh, you know, you've let slip a few times, like, uh, your true crime. I'm, I'm curious, like where, you know, where, 
it, it's a it's a Monday that we're recording this on a Monday. So that like, do you like? Uh, I'm trying to think like that. You listen to my favorite murder and crime junkie and Jensen and Holes. Like, I have like I almost know like what your your playlist was this morning um, as you're driving to work. Uh, but you normally teach this forensics course, um, and so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious a little bit, you know, what's this course like? Um, you know, is it different from your biology course? Obviously, I would imagine it's not co-taught. And, you know, sort of, is this just a temporary hiatus because of schedule? Or is this like, this a course that is part of what you're going to be doing, hopefully going forward? So a lot about it, but I want to hear about this forensics course. Yeah, so I uh, I was asked many years ago, probably about a decade ago, right after I got my job there, to if I would teach forensics and environmental science. And at first I was like, well, I want the environmental, but I don't know about this forensic stuff because <laughs> I have no background in forensics at all. So anyway, it was like I had to I had to take forensics if I took environmental. So I ended up taking them both. And it was like the best decision ever because I started to really, really enjoy all things uh, forensics, all things true crime. And that passion has definitely driven me to develop some really cool curriculum. I have a kind of a partner teacher. She teaches forensics as well. And this year she's teaching all the sections, but she and I, we are like twins in terms of the way we develop curriculum and our passion for case studies and real life applications. So she and I, uh, we developed this curriculum a few years ago where we took everything out of the textbook and everything is case-based. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is the big difference between forensics and biology. Biology, we went towards the storyline um, using Illinois storylines. Uh, uh, Got to be like three, four years ago, something like that. And um, unlike the storylines uh, in forensic, the case-based is more just we find cases that link to our unit and we explore the case as we're learning the content so that we can make sense of the evidence. And we tie in a bunch of the legal application as well, criminal justice system. And one of the fun things too is we can look at, a, you know, social justice to some degree you know, how are some of these techniques that we're learning about going to help improve the justice system? Mm. How have they progressed over time? And the thing about forensics is when we got our textbook, like had to be five years now, I think we've had a textbook. It's outdated. Mm -hmm. It's so outdated at this point because they had like bite mark evidence is good (laughs) evidence in there. The use of like hair to individualize to individuals. It's not like that anymore. We we debunked a lot of that. It's constantly changing in a way that I can barely keep up with. And so that's another big difference between forensics and biology. You have to be so creative in forensics because everything's changing all the time and you got to be on your toes. You got to be willing to, you know, kind of cut out what you had planned that day to talk about a case that just came back up in the news. Mm. Uh, it's also elective. Forensics is for seniors, and we only do seniors. And biology is a sophomore level course. We teach chemistry first, okay. and then we teach biology and then physics. So uh, that's another big difference. The maturity level of the students in forensics is quite a bit different, and they chose to take the class. Yeah, They weren't being forced to do it. So their interest level is usually very, very high. Hmm. 
And I think forensics in general, like it's a very, you know, it's a subject that a lot of people can get into. So, you know, a lot of kids have career aspirations in forensics. And so we, uh, we get a lot of guest speakers. Uh, we had um, my brother-in-law, he is a, well, he is a DNA scientist. Oh. So he came in and talked to kids uh, before he moved out of state. And then we got the FBI, um, which was awesome. It was one of my students knew someone from the FBI oh. and she got all, all of these female agents to come in from the FBI, which was super cool because a lot of our um, female students don't get to see a lot of females in that career in FBI or law enforcement. They're mm -hmm. usually seeing males in those positions. So it was super nice. It was like very girl power moment. <laughs> um, we also have a ballistics expert that comes in every year from local crime lab. Uh, we got invited from the state police to go to uh, a mock body farm that they created for their students nice. of, uh, in, in po the police force. And they had put pigs everywhere, dead pigs all over mm -hmm. the forest preserve. And they're studying the entomology. Yeah. And so they collected bugs and they let our kids go in and collect bugs and um, uh, bring them back to the lab. And then we uh, looked at them under the microscope to identify their species and such. So it's just like, you know, super, super fun, hands-on, case-based class. And uh, I definitely hope that I'll have the chance to teach it. Uh, next year. This year it just didn't work out. There was too many biology sections. <laughs> and so they needed me to do the COTOT bio and it just, it just worked out that way, but I'm sure next year I'll, I'll, I'll have it back at least to some degree. Yeah. It's interesting to talk about that because um, I taught very briefly uh, about 15 years ago for a couple of years, I taught a forensics course. Um, and it was, uh, there was a, it was a combination of a few different things. It was a point where our school was making this real push to offer electives and stuff like that. And, you know, I've already talked about how I feel like I've gotten stretched thin a few times with my teaching preps, but I was teaching, um, I ended up teaching like three different types of electives, including a forensic science. And my problem at the time was the, the forensic science wasn't very scientific. Like hearing you talk about mm -hmm. like your textbook being five years out of date, like I felt like there was very little discussion about the inequities of criminal justice in the forensics field. They were talking about things like blood spatter and teeth marks and fiber evidence and hair at the time. And a lot of it was being debunked, but I had these resources that were like, use this lab to show this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, but this isn't science. Like there was a lot of uncontrolled science in science. And also CSI at the time was really, it was still pretty new and it was huge. So the kids wanted to come in and it was very CSI effect. They wanted to come in and see all these techniques. And I was like, well, okay, I don't have a gas chromatograph. So we're not going to analyze these, these, we're not going to analyze these paint samples to figure out the difference. Cause I don't have like this hundred thousand dollar piece of equipment. And so it was a case where I felt like I was teaching this thing that was being called a science course, but it wasn't really very sciencey. Um, mm -hmm. and it felt it, it was there. And I felt also very stretched thin. I didn't have like, if I could have gone to a body farm, I would have been like all over that. Um, <laughs> but I felt like, I felt like I, I was trying to teach that course a little before it was ready to go. And then I was like, 
And they're like, okay, well, we want you to teach these like six different classes. I was like, all right, I, I got to focus on what I was doing. And uh, we, we got a little overambitious with our electives. And all of a sudden, all of our non-elective classes had like 30 students in them because all the teachers were teaching electives and stuff like that crazy. So I, I very easily gave it up. But I always, when I look at it, I go, gosh, I would have loved to have taught a class on like, you know, the Innocence Project. Like how forensics is being used. So I love the fact that you're bringing up the uh, the the component. Um, I'm wondering if you ever have any like history teachers or teachers who have like law interests who you have the ability to collaborate with. I know that's hard to do, but have, have you ever had a conversations about bringing in maybe some of the humanities teachers from your building? No, you know what? We haven't done that, but it is something that's been in our radar. We've been trying to do more like interdisciplinary um, types of activities where we're getting the kids involved in different areas. One of the one of the things we were trying to do was get them to use more real world applications when they're trying to do a project or whatever. Let's not do Google slides. <laughs> so we brought the tech department in to teach us how to do podcasts. And so you mentioned the Innocence Project. And so uh, the past two years, we had the kids create their own podcast episode on one of the cases in the Innocence Project. And they put together a podcast and um, we you know, let the students review each other's podcast by giving each other stars, like as their way of peer review, not to, you know, to be mean, but to give them suggestions on improvement. So if they gave you two stars, then they put the reasons why so that you can improve before you got your grade. And the kids just, they loved that. Um, so I think that um, more interdisciplinary or trying to do uh, history, especially. We have a Chicago history course at our school and um, there's starved rock murders. That would be fun to kind of collaborate on that. You know, the, the idea of, of getting maybe some more background from someone who has ability to look through the archives or get us some different media sources would be pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, you could, I, I definitely, yeah. A hundred percent agree, though, that forensics, because of the nature of of it, it's always changing and progressing. And so you can't get stuck on believing anything is a hundred percent. You know, it's like there's this one of the big things we're trying to teach the kids. And this isn't just like forensics. It works in biology, too, because the kids think. Well, they think that nothing progresses in science. They think it's just science gives me answers. And then when they find that those answers maybe are changed with new knowledge, then they're like, well, science is wrong. <laughs> and in forensics, I think it's easier for them to understand that technology's improved. So our understanding improved. And now we realize that, you know, we have to revise our initial ideas. Yeah. But in biology, like they'll think, you know, with COVID and you know that well the, the scientists were wrong about this. Well, our knowledge changed. Yeah. We developed new technology. We got new information. Our knowledge changed and our idea of how something worked changed. Yeah. And so like that kind of thing is so important with a class like forensics because they can easily get the wrong idea and have misconceptions on on different topics if you lead them to believe that a certain technology is foolproof. And that there's no um, possible other explanation for for something because it's just crazy how quick 
forensics is changing and progressing on a regular basis, especially with DNA. The DNA is just nuts to try and keep up with it. It's very hard. Yeah. Yeah. And the, 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 the sort of citizen science piece that you kind of talk about the, the, everybody's the, there's all these online sleuths and, and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, yeah. It's really interesting to sort of think about the, the understanding that you could get students to understand science as a verb um, and not as a noun. <laughs> That's sort of right. the way I describe it uh, by teaching them forensics. Um, and then hopefully they will understand that that is all fields. And, you know, I, I, for me, like my background is sort of virology, microbiology, molecular. So to me, like, um, I, I don't think I've ever had a textbook that was accurate. Like the textbook, by the time we've ordered it, is out of date. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I remember students asking questions about things. And they're like, yeah, I can't find this thing in here. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're not going to find that in there. Like, you know, uh, we were talking, I remember talking about RNAi, uh, you know, and RNAi in the current, you know, textbook I have is it was the Nobel Prize for RNAi had just come out. Um, I think it's much about our last textbook. And they're like, it's not in here. And I was like, well, that's because this is a book and it was printed on a certain mm-hmm. day. And the scientists didn't say, yes, we're done. Here's the biology book. They kept working <laughs> um, and uh, and doing labs because of uh, of recent research that has come out. Um, I always find that's the exciting part to me about science. And it's great that you can get hook a group of students in and get that communication piece uh, in with forensics. I, it was something I failed to do. Um, <laughs> it was a frustration I had. Well, you know, too, I think that piece of of having students encounter relevant science through other media, whether it be articles online or journals or just talking to scientists. Uh, you know, I know my brother-in-law who does DNA. I had him look through all of my notes that I was giving students and he's he, he brought it right right away way to me that he's like, you know, you're teaching them a technology that we don't even use. Like mm. it's, I, when I started my job 15 years ago, that was already out of date. Mm-hmm. And that's the primary technology that was being used that, uh, you know, the, the gel electrophoresis or riflip or restriction yeah. enzyme stuff. So they, he's like, we don't use that anymore. It's cute that you're teaching them that, but you may want to focus on, on the modern technologies. And he, he gave me his, um, you know, forensic technician textbooks and stuff. And I was like going through every page, trying to highlight, trying to learn, but a lot of it wasn't even online. Like I was having a hard time finding that information, but, uh, I, you know, with biology, I do the Skype as scientists and, um, some of the, the, the scientists that will uh, be available, they, tend to talk about things that are pretty technical, but they break it down in a way that's pretty easy for the students to understand. And I learn something new every time that I do one of those because uh, you don't like, I think sometimes as science teachers, we live inside this box where we're teaching science, but we're not doing science. Yeah. And so we need sometimes to get those resources from people who are actually doing science to help make things more relevant for our kids who might end up going into science as a profession when they get out of high school. Yeah. This is why I think every lab should hire a teacher during the summer to go in and do science. Um, and if they only want to hire one, I'm available. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's a, but I remember it was, uh, cause I, I used to do, um, before in the pre COVID times, we had a very robust, um, job shutting program. And in Boston, we have all these labs. Um, and, and we would go in some places we would go in, the teachers would go in, but mostly I teach juniors and seniors and I'd be just like, 
yep, here, get on the train, get on the T, go to the labs, go off. And I'd send off, you know, four to six students off to this lab and they just, they'd figure out how to get there. They'd go, they'd interview, they'd take pictures, they'd come back and they'd do presentations on them. And I remember going one of the first years I went with a group and we went to this lab and um, I had done a research seminar. I had done a research experience the previous summer, and we had done some pretty high level things. And one of the teach, one of the professors was presenting something to them, almost like they were like, you know, like seventh graders, like had no idea where the content level was. And she said something and asked a question. And all the kids looked at me like, why do they think they're dumb? And so they answered the question and then they opened it up to the students and the students asked these like super technical questions. And then the look on the professor was like, oh, you know what's going on. <laughs> it was like, it was like, but I was in a room with both levels, both students and an adult who both knew way more, but they started at this very low level and then got to this very mm -hmm. high level. It's very, uh, it's, it's really good. It's, it's been the, of all the things I remember canceling, I canceled our 2020, uh, job. We had sent one group out on job shadow, like the end of February, the last week of February in 2020. And then it was the, the Monday before everything shut down the Monday, the ninth, I came in and I went to my, my co-teacher, Ryan, and I was like, uh, we have to cancel our job chatting program. He's like, you think so? And I was like, we're not. And I was talking, already talking to some professors who were like, they, they were like not booking things. They're like, they were being told to not book things and they were like hesitant and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, I don't think we're going to be able to send. Now, did I know that I was like the whole world was going to shut down for months? No, but I was like, yeah. it's going to be really hard to get kids to get into Boston. Like I was like on that level. I was like, this is going to be a logistical nightmare. We should just cancel this because the next couple of weeks are going to be messy and not <laughs> the next 18 months are going to be messy or two years are going to be messy. Um, but it looks like that COVID may have killed that program, unfortunately. So um, I am hopeful to do some Skype with the scientist stuff to replace some of that. Um, we did one of them last year and I'm hoping to do to do more. So that's, a, that's an amazing program uh, with an amazing archive, too. Even if you just have kids mm -hmm. watch the videos, those are great. All right. So as we progress towards the exit, I'm going to ask you, like, what are you looking forward to? We talked about both, you know, a lot of positive stuff for you. What are you looking forward to in your classroom in the, in the upcoming years? Well, I uh, was lucky enough to get the opportunity to be a curriculum tester for the NCSE, the National Center for Science Education. Oh, yeah. And they are having us pilot a nature of science unit and an evolution unit. They also have a climate change unit, but I figured I better just stick with, <laughs> with a couple. Um, but I'm super excited to try out some of their units. Um, their big goal is to develop no conflict evolution and climate change units. And um, I teach in a, a very conservative area where sometimes talking about evolution or climate change for that matter can um, strike some chords. So I'm really excited to get some different perspectives and develop some new relationships with people throughout the country, talking about ways to make evolution more accessible for for students so that's my that's my big excitement right now uh it's a two-year program and i just started over this past summer and we get uh to travel out to colorado in the summer for some training so i'm super excited i haven't been to colorado before i'm hoping that it works out with everything in the pandemic the past couple years i i never really know what's going to happen until yeah <laughs> right before it goes on um yeah. And I'm really looking forward to trying to get back to some degree of normal in the classroom. Like I think that 
I thought teaching was stressful, you know, to some degree before the pandemic. And I just want that level of stress back because that was like a very healthy level of stress um, with the pandemic last year. And then this year, just with all the quarantine and constant, you know, things that are going on, um, it's definitely been, it's been, it's been stressful year so far. I feel like there's just so much that we have to do. And although it's wonderful, the pan, you know, it's wonderful that the students are willing to reach out in every avenue, every way they can now. It's also a little overwhelming mm -hmm. because we're getting emails left and right. The expectation is that we are able to help kids catch up at home, help kids catch up who are in person, meet with kids outside of class. So I'm really hoping um, in the near future that the quarantining won't be as uh, prevalent as it is now. And we'll have more kids in, in person full time without these big lapses of having to be at home and trying to catch up. Yeah. So I feel like those those are two two excitements. I really am optimistic that things are going to get better and that teaching is going to become easier. And I'm really excited to to try out some new evolution uh, lessons. That I I got some horse teeth 3D printed, and oh, I'm wow. super excited to to use them. That was like I opened my box that they sent me, and there was horse teeth in there, and I was <laughs> just so excited. Uh, yes. Everyone thought I was crazy at my house. Yeah. Pre-vet. That's like a pre-vet. Like I get, I get things shipped to me. Like I get, uh, uh, I will drive in and pick up like a plate of, a plate of yeast from a professor mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'll bring them home. And my wife's like, what's this in the fridge? I was like, oh, don't worry about it. It's just, it's just yeast. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're, we're nerds of a type. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I hear you talking and, and I've been noticing it. And so I'm in my very Northeast bubble here. So, um, like the pandemic has been, is, is so regional and so different. And so like my high school, um, our student body is 90, 90% plus vaccinated. Our staff is there. So we've actually had, it's not to say we don't have any, and I don't want to minimize the disruption. I was actually just talking to a colleague uh, earlier today who was saying it has a couple of students who are going into quarantine and, and that, but um, by and large, this year is so much more of a normal year. Yes, we're masked, but with high vaccination rates, the Massachusetts um, numbers are, are not that high right now. And I know a lot of the other parts of the country, but in, in spring of 2020, like we were getting, like we had some of the highest cases anywhere. And so mm -hmm. I know I talked to some friends of mine who were in the Midwest and they're like, do you know anybody who has COVID? And I was like, yes, I know lots of kids and their families and people like it was, you know, a lot of people were, were the numbers here were terrible. So when everybody shut down, it shut down here and it was really bad. And I think in a lot of ways, the fact that everything shut down everywhere, even though there wasn't necessarily equal, it was to protect people and protect healthcare. Um, that, and then I think as a result, we had a higher vaccination rate because of the, how bad it was early. And last year was uh, totally like we were hybrid most of the year. And I didn't even, we didn't even talk about sort of what your last year was like. I know a lot of people out in Illinois were either, depending on where you were in the state, you were either fully remote all last year or you were in a hybrid or so you might've been face-to-face. -face. Like what, what was your situation last year like and how is it compared to this year? So we did start fully remote and then we brought back our um, IEP and high needs students in person. And then uh, gradually we brought in more and more uh, students until we, we, in some classes I might've had 15 kids 
in the class, but it, it didn't really exceed more than about 15, maybe 20 kids by the end of the year. Um, unfortunately, depending on the class, we might have, you know, anywhere from 70% to 50% like at home on the computer. So we had some kids that were full remote the entire year, and then we had kids that were moving away from fully remote to in-person. And so our, our in-person rosters were always changing, but we uh, we were expected to teach the kids at home on Google Meet at the same time that we taught the kids in person. Yeah. And so that was definitely stressful. Uh, this year, I believe we only have maybe two or three kids total in the whole school that are fully remote. And I, I do have one of the those students in my biology class. So that's been it's been interesting, but it's so much better than having, you know, having a good portion of your class at home because yeah. they weren't really active at home with participation and stuff. So I felt like the in-person kids were maybe getting uh, more attention because they were there yeah. and because I could look at them and ask them a question and they were going to answer me. Yeah. Um, so I, I think in that in that sense, uh, things have gotten a lot more normal here. Um, I we we do have a decent amount of quarantining. We I don't know what our exact vaccination rate is at our school, mm -hmm. but uh, we we do have kids who are uh, quarantining multiple times, and they are not vaccinated. So anytime they have a close contact, they have to be quarantined for ten days. Yeah, and so. That, that's the hard part is when you get kids that are, are quarantining for 10 days and then they come back and then maybe a week or two later they're quarantining again. Yeah. Um, it can it can really disrupt stuff. But yeah, I had a couple yeah. I had a couple students that were like that. I, I, I have a specific kid in my mind. In mind actually, I had a, a family of kids where I had in different classes. I had siblings and mm -hmm. like I can remember last year because they were active in various ways and it was also their family that they had a close contact and then they went, they had to go fully remote and then they came back and then like one of their family members in their house got it. And so then they went fully remote and then they came back and then like, like three weeks later, one of the kids got it and then they went fully like, and it was because uh -huh. they were siblings and they're in a house. Like there's no way to, I mean, you've got a couple siblings, you got family members. And I remember like, it was just that one family, but I also know that I, there were other teachers who had like large numbers of kids who were doing that all last year. Cause we were, we were hybrid, which meant kids came in two days a week. They were fully remote. They were doing asynchronous work two days a week. And then we all Zoomed together on Wednesdays. And we did that for most of the year. But in uh, May, we brought all the kids back except for the kids who were part of a remote academy. So basically, mm -hmm. kids could have been hybrid or fully remote. And about 15 to 20% of our school went fully remote for the whole year. And those kids, I taught one of those classes, they were fully remote over Zoom. And that was their thing. And it was so much better to have that model where you either taught a remote class or you taught a hybrid class and not a a class with some kids on the computer and some kids not mm -hmm. on the computer. Um, it was probably the best decision my district made last year was because those fully remote kids, I had things like there were labs that I could do with them that I set up all the materials and then they could pick them up. 
or some I'm, some kids, I, it was only like I had a dozen kids in my AP class. So I just drove around town and dropped them off. <laughs> like I would leave school and just be like, like biology Santa Claus uh, delivering uh, lab, lab <laughs> supplies, you know, uh, agar cubes to all the happy boys and girls. But like I'd make up stuff or I'd have our lab prep people and do that. And it was a much more tenable situation to provide them a little bit more sort of normalcy that they could do. Now, obviously, we scaled way back on what we did lab wise because we were when they were in person, they were six feet apart and they were yeah. masked. And like this year we've relaxed the distancing, everybody's masked and we're able to do activities again. So for me, I realize when I go on Twitter, I see everybody around the country and I know that it's not normal. Um, but in the Northeast, at least in like the Boston suburbs, uh, it feels a lot more like what you're hoping to get to. So I'm hopeful that we are just six months ahead on the pandemic and, you know, come spring, everybody's going to have uh uh, maybe things will be a little bit more normal. Um, at least I hope. <laughs> yeah, really. I think, uh, I think one of the highlights of, of this year for me is just getting the kids back into groups and having them talk to each other. I felt like last year, since we did have so many kids remote that it got to a point where a lot of the kids were just so computer focused. And if you ask questions, it's almost like they wanted to type a response instead of just talking. Yeah. Like they just got so um, focused in on their technology. And uh, I just was so excited even for the kids to just talk about what they were doing that weekend with each other, just to be social and and talk to each other about their lives. Like I was so excited to hear that chatter back. Yeah. I, I never thought I would dislike <laughs> the silence uh, so much. But I did last year. They were so quiet. And so uh, it seemed like because we had such a split, I think up until uh, the spring, we had, I want to say, almost 70% of our students were at home. Mm. And it wasn't until after spring that we really saw that bump up a lot. It was like 50-50. And then it became like 60-40 in favor of being in person. And then finally, we had the majority in person. Yeah. But it was a really slow progression. And I felt like some of the kids, they just like, they didn't know how to communicate with the other kids in the class. They hadn't seen them most of the year. And yeah. it was just such a weird experience. So. I'm so thankful to, you know, get to do labs again and we don't have to wear gloves every time we like touch markers <laughs> and stuff like last year. No, the, I swear we the went theater. through so many gloves. It was just not even right. Yeah. Um, just for them to, you know, use a marker because we weren't sure yeah. what, what was the right thing to do. Yeah. The hygiene theater, the sp like misting and spraying and wiping everything. Down I know. Time, so. <laughs> we had to clean every yeah. single desk, yeah. like between every use. Yep. It was just. Yep. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it was crazy. It was I felt crazy. like I've I've never cleaned so much in my life as as last year. Yeah. Well, and then the beyond that, like I even as you know, and as a parent, you know, I I this past weekend, like one of my my oldest son had two of his friends over, and they were playing games out on the back porch. Like even that, like that was something we weren't doing last year. Right. Um. And they were outside, and they were you know they're all vaccinated, but they were outside. They all wore masks, but they sat outside and they played games together, and they were. But like even that level of social interaction and like it, the kids were isolated like i saw it in my own kids i saw it in there even when the kids were going to school they, they weren't nearly as social um right. and they weren't social in their downtime uh, or most kids i shouldn't say all because certainly i know that there were kids who were socializing like there was no pandemic going on but i know a lot of kids many more kids were much more isolated in their downtime away from school so um hopefully that's that's transitioning away yeah uh, 
All right. Before we get to questions for me, uh, let's talk about you when you're not teaching, even though I, I te teased it a little bit. So what do you like to do when you're not when you're not in the classroom? Well, yeah, yeah, I totally love everything true crime. So I definitely listen to all those podcasts, uh, Crime Junkies and uh, Jensen and Holes. I think the Murder Squad is probably my favorite podcast. And uh, that is hosted by uh, Billy Jensen and Paul Holes. And uh, so I'm currently reading Billy Jensen's book, Chase Darkness with me. Yeah. And uh, it's on the Golden State Killer and his journey kind of prior to that and after to that, after to that, after that. And, uh, uh, yeah, I, so I, I do a lot of reading. I also love, I love everything on um, science nonfiction. So, you know, uh, like I was reading spillover mm -hmm. last year about the viruses and so I, I love, <laughs> I love, um, I know it sounds terrible. Like in a pandemic, I love reading about outbreaks and, uh, diseases. And so another podcast that I listen to too is, um, this podcast will kill you. Yep. Um, but I love reading books that they suggest uh, on like smallpox and whatever. I think it's yeah. so fascinating. Yeah, I read Go and I read then, Ghost Map this summer, which they brought up in their cholera episode. Yeah, yeah that was great. Uh, so I love all that kind of stuff. And then uh, I also am a hobby photographer. When my kids were little, I decided that I didn't want to pay for these <laughs> photographers to take pictures. So I just figured I would learn how to do it. And uh, I really enjoy. I really enjoy uh, taking like portrait photography and I do like some nature, but mostly I do pictures of people. And a lot of times there are pictures when people aren't really paying attention. Like I don't do a lot of post stuff. I like just kind of capturing the moment as it happens. And uh, my kids are kind of getting annoyed at me uh, <laughs> over some of the pictures because I like to frame them and put them all over the wall. So I, I've been using my dog a lot lately because he, he still lets me do that. Uh, or I'll just take family pictures. Like my niece is a senior this year. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, I spent a few hours with her and her mom and got her senior pictures done. Nice. So I do a lot with that. I uh, love to bake too. And, uh, you know, anything dessert is is up my alley. So <laughs> nice. um, those are, are my primary uh, interests. Yeah, you've got some good... Good self care. Yeah, good food. self care in there. <laughs> yeah, food, pictures, and and reading about death, and you know that's that's me in a nutshell. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's, it's funny. I've I have my books up here. I, I can see up on my shelf. I spill over. I have several of the other books. Some of your books that you had on your uh, uh, on your website as well. Um, but I have a lot of I have a lot of true crime too. Um, I might be in the process of reading Devil's Knot right now, um, which mm -hmm. is the the first in the west west uh, west memphis three trilogy is uh currently the the book in my kindle that i've been going through so uh yeah i can't throw any stones on those things and i i listened to the audiobook uh by billy jensen a while ago so um, <laughs> um and i can and as you said this podcast can kill me, uh, uh will kill you is like one of my favorites like i think that that podcast is made for me it's two women named aaron talking about yeah. infectious diseases to me aaron i feel like it is it is like <laughs> uh, if they were ever going to bring a teacher in outside i would hope it would be me because i think i've got the name for it but um but yeah no it's like it they are they are a hundred percent like that is my interest my biology is like infectious mm -hmm. diseases i love infectious diseases that's totally me so <laughs> it is so fun too because the way they split up that podcast with the history and then also the pathology yeah. and i love that because i think the history is just incredibly fascinating and they do all those interviews yeah um and some of them are are definitely 
you know, biology friendly, some of those interviews and some of their episodes, they even, I know they have like something, um, the quarantini that they do, which is not very high school friendly, (laughs) but they put on their website, they they put student friendly ones without the quarantini recipes in them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I've never, I've never used them, but I have thought like I, in my mind, I'd love to have a project that ties in some of their, some of their podcast stuff. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I have never done it, but I, I have done some projects in the past where I definitely, now that that resource is out there, I think I will tap into it at some point. All right. Before we get to picks of the episode, do you have any questions for me? All right. So I was thinking, uh, what is your all-time favorite activity you do with your students that you would never, ever think of ever shelving because you just think it's so valuable? Oh, gosh. What is my favorite thing I do? So... um Goodness, goodness. I see. So there's two problems with that. Um, uh, they're like my children. Um, <laughs> I have several labs and things like that that I've built like from the ground up. Like right now, I'm in the process of doing this ladybug um, lab series, which I co-created with um, some teachers out in California and the Berkeley Laboratory and and all that. It's something I do with my AP students. I also built a whole. Um, fruit fly microbiome lab series that I built with a uh, fruit fly lab at UMass and the, in, in an immunology fellowship I did. So there's some things that I do like that, that I get so excited about. And I've, and there's so many things and they're appropriate for AP biology. So as long as I'm teaching AP biology, those be the other things. But at the same time, there is a part of me that I like to burn everything to the ground. Uh, like I am not, I, I have no sacred cows. So the idea that I would never like that I would ever go a year without doing that. Like last year I didn't do either of those things because I couldn't do the hands-on. So I was dying to do them again. So the question then becomes, what did I do last year? What did I find a way to make sure I did last year when I couldn't do anything? Um, and I think I'm trying to think of the labs that I did because I did some other funky labs. Um, you know, I think the lab that would it's going to be a lab because that's who I am. It's probably the yeast spheres lab. I don't know if you've ever done the sodium alginate yeast lab where you drop the sodium, the yeast spheres and, and hydrogen peroxide. Like that's probably the lab that will be the thing I do every year until I stopped teaching because Mm -hmm. I use it to teach so many different things. I use it to teach enzymes. I can use it to teach lab design. I use it to teach statistics um, because it's, you get big ends on there. So, Mm -hmm. um, so the answer is uh, lab. Um, (laughs) Lab is the center of my work. Um, I don't know if there's a specific lab, but if there was one lab, it would be my, it would be the sodium alginate yeast spheres lab. Um, But to me, I guess the, the answer that I sort of roundabout talked my way into is that um, as a biology teacher, I like labs that have like real data, their students are collecting, the data is messy and they then get to do some sort of design component with it. And all three of the labs I just described have each one of those. There's a big initial data collection that's kind of noisy and messy and has like a an engaging part to it. Like it brings the kids in. They're fun to do, but they generate a lot of data. There's a lot of stuff you can do with the data. And then there's a lot of avenues where kids can design the follow-up. So um, I think that that will always sort of be a cornerstone of how I teach uh, because that's that's what science is, figuring out how to collect data, then collecting data, and then getting confused by the data you collected. So. <laughs> I think that level of confusion is it's something that is so important. And it's something that like with 
I don't know. I feel like sometimes with with when you're in a rush, you just want to eliminate any confusion. You just want the answer to be apparent and you want to be able to move on. Yeah. But then unfortunately, the kids, they're not making connections. They're trying to understand what's happening, but they don't really put the time and effort into thinking about what's happening because everything is just so clear cut. They need that challenge, that level of confusion, that level of, of messiness mm-hmm. that you mentioned yeah. in order to figure things out on their own and make their own connections. So I feel, feel like that's something that's missing in a lot of labs is that component of, of messiness and confusion. So I, I love that. Yeah. So like to example today, I had kids in there collecting their data um, and they're, we're doing this ladybug lab. So my ladybug lab is, is again, I, it's models from stuff that goes out in the wild and in the Sierra Nevadas. And the kids basically, I order 1500 ladybugs. I order them from Amazon. It costs about 25 bucks. Uh, so you get them in and you put them in little habitats and the kids get the ladybugs out one at a time. And I have them cl- climb like a clear plastic tube. And once they get up to a certain point, I have like a start line and they time how long it takes from the start line to the finish line. And they get like, you know, a dozen ladybugs or I forget. I think, I have a t- I think I'm going to do 10 as their baseline. And then they take the ladybugs and they pack them into tubes and they put them on ice and they have them go into a cold coma. And the next day they take them out and they dump them on their backs and time how long it takes for them to all flip over. And they time time that. So they get this two different data points and it's part of a climate change model. It's got a lot of different, there's like a million Mm -hmm. things I hang on this tree. But then I ultimately asked the kids to design their own investigations based off of that. And so like I had kids today who were doing this lab where they took some of them and they put them in an incubator instead of on ice to see they saw how does the climbing change if they're in an incubator, like thermal stress, heat instead of Mm -hmm. cold. I had another group that did multiple rounds of cold coma. They put them on cold coma and then they had them, they flipped them over and then they did it again to see because there's some, they should be spending energy and should have less reserves. And the group that they multiple freeze. I was talking to this group. They had their data and they had their error bars up and the error bars overlapped and they even ran the t-test because we were using data classroom and over the and they have this huge variation error bar. Every time they run it, the the variance goes up, but the means don't really change. Like mm. the means are statistically insignificant differences in the means they because the error bars overlap, but the data gets bigger and bigger and bigger spread. So some of them are not recovering and are taking forever to climb, and some just are fine. But the error bars kept going, and they're like, "Well, what does this mean?" And I was like, "Great, what does this mean?" And like we had this really robust conversation about like what are they learning from the data, and it's not what they predicted, and it's not what the paper they read said was going to happen. And so then, but, but I said, does, is this data exactly the same? They're like, so the data is the same. And I said, look at it. Is the data the same? They're like, no. I was like, okay, how is it different? Why do you think that is? What does that mean? What do you want to do now? And that's like, that's science. And you can't like, Mm -hmm. unless the kids do the stuff with the data, like I can't tell a kid that experience. There's, there's no lecture that gives a kid that sense of science. It's only when they do the mess that they get to that point. So. Yeah. <laughs> I could talk about lab all day. <laughs> well, that's amazing though. I love that. And I love that, that, they, that feeling that they get when they're going through that process of wanting to know more yeah. and that excitement that they get when they see the ladybug climbing up and trying to see how it fits into what they thought. And it, exactly. I mean, it is science. That's the process of science and they're, they're living it instead of reading about it, yeah. which is 
so important. Yeah. And not over Zoom. They're doing it in person. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Which is the base thing about this year versus last year. All right. We are time to picks of the episode. We haven't, do, we don't, we don't do these when we do the panels, but I'm doing a one-on-one. So, so Amy, what is your pick of the episode? So I chose the Institute of Human Anatomy, and this is a really cool group that offers uh, these videos of human cadavers, and they use them to teach anatomy. And they have these great extra long YouTube videos that will show you everything from like the size of a uterus pre-pregnancy and post-pregnancy to what liver cancer looks like or what pneumonia looks like in the lungs. Um, but they also have these less detailed short clips that they post on TikTok. <laughs> and um, they're fun to show the kids like as like a hook or a, a little warm up, um, you know, and I just find them so fascinating. And I watch them all the time. And my husband thinks I'm very weird <laughs> because he sees me looking at these dead body videos all the time. And then he, you know, I'm listening to true crime on the way to work. And then I'm reading books about death. Yeah. So he's like, if I go missing, you know, we, you know, Amy knows how to get away with it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so I love, I love everything about it. And, uh, the, and the Institute of Human Anatomy, that is not the, the death and missing uh, husband, but, uh, I, I really find it so fascinating and they do teach it in a way that is student appropriate. And if there's any that are a little bit matured, they will, um, give a little warning. So you know which ones are suitable to show, you know, kids, depending what age group you're dealing with. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate the outreach that hits TikTok. Um, I am not there, um, but but I, I know that's where the kids are. So um, I appreciate it. Uh, all right. Well, my pick is a, uh, a nine week uh, course uh, that is called Teaching Climate Change Essentials, um, which is uh, it's a professional development program designed to engage and equip elementary, middle, and high school teachers with tools needed to successfully incorporate climate change into their classroom. So this is something that's accessible uh, to everybody. Um, and apparently, it may be a course that I'm going to be helping facilitate. So um, uh, an old friend of mine from uh, old online mentoring days uh, is helping to coordinate that. And she recently, recently reached out to me, and um, I started talking about this course, and they've been running they ran one during the summer and one over the spring, um, which were facilitated by uh, Judy Jones, who's a retired teacher in North Carolina. And anybody who's ever done anything in biology education in North Carolina knows Judy and Judy's awesome. And Judy and I used to collaborate together um, and they've asked me if I would help out with this winter one. So uh, starting in November, uh, November and December is the plan to, to run this nine week course. So if you're interested in picking something up and there's a couple different rates um, for this, um, that are available one if even if you want graduate credits and one if you're just interested in the pdps for professional uh credit so if you're if you're looking to build those pdps and you want to get climate change in your classroom um i'm excited about it um i was joking that i feel like i don't have a huge wealth of experience i said that to my colleague and he's like you know we're currently doing this ladybug thing which is an entire curriculum you built about climate change with experts in california i was like oh yeah i guess i I don't think I don't think of myself as somebody like I know everything about microbiology. Like I can feel I feel very microbe 
expertise, but apparently I, I do know some stuff about climate change too. So, um, uh, and I've been reading the book that goes along with the course and it's all stuff I know. So I'm pretty excited about it because I haven't facilitated a course probably in three or four years now. Um, and so, and I do really enjoy online facilitation and working with other teachers um, in those type of courses. So uh, a very much a self plug, but I buried it like an hour and 10 minutes into this uh, podcast. So if somebody's dedicated to reading, they won't mind my self plug that I've, I've put in for this course. So. <laughs> All right. Well, Amy, this has been a great time. Um, even on a Monday, this has re-energized me on a Monday evening. I don't feel nearly as tired as I did uh, an hour ago <laughs> after a school day uh, at the beginning of the week. So thank you so much for joining me. Yeah. Thank you again for asking me to do this. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. Well, credits for this episode. Uh, you can uh, subscribe to this podcast on your podcast player of choice. Uh, you could even rank it behind your favorite true crime ones just because I only put out two a month. So uh, you you can get to it after all of your like dead bodies. Um and diseases. Uh, and you can go to patreon.com uh, slash lot uh, to support this episode. I also post uh, my uh, show notes on there. I also post show notes on lifeoftheschool.org. Uh, you can get music or hear the music for this and every episode is by X Magicians and Jake Jenkins. And I have the uh, Bandcamp uh, link for them in show notes. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. And Amy, you're on Twitter. What's your handle on Twitter? Uh, I think it's just Amy L. Kelly 81. Yeah, at Amy L. Kelly 81. And I will uh, put that uh, in the show notes as well for everybody. So thanks all for joining us. And I will talk to everybody soon. Bye.